Good morning, church. If you brought your Bible, I want you to open it to Ephesians chapter 5, please. There are four books that follow the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians in the middle of your New Testament, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all written to a series of Greek-speaking churches by one man, the Apostle Paul. I want you to go to Ephesians and chapter 5. There were three men out fishing one day, and they caught a mermaid. And they were shocked, as you can well imagine. The mermaid looked at him and said, I'll grant you each a wish if you'll set me free. The first man spoke up and said, I'd like you to make me twice as smart as I already am. She said, your wish is granted. And the guy begins quoting Shakespeare and, and quoting beautiful ancient poetry. It was just amazing. The second guy picked up on what was happening. He said, I want you to make me three times as smart as I am. She said, your wish is granted. And he started calculating expansive algebraic equations, explaining chemistry and physics and the likes. It was just amazing. The third and final guy, he didn't want to be outdone. He said, I want you to make me five times smarter th smart as I am. She said, your wish is granted. And she turned him into his wife. It has been said that couples enter into marriage making two enormous and yet common mistakes. She believes she's going to change him, and he believes she'll never change. In our culture, the stereotypical wife spots a man she's attracted to, she sees potential there, and she takes it upon herself to marry him so that she may improve him for the rest of their lives together. The stereotypical man in our culture senses what's going on early on, begins to resist and push back, and determines that woman's never going to change, so he simply unplugs and refuses to make any even small changes that he possibly could. Both attitudes are harmful to a good marriage, and both attitudes are in direct contradiction with biblical principle. Today is the fifth in about a seven-part series, I'm not sure how long I'm going to go with this, uh, a fifth in a series entitled Behind Family Lines. And we've talked about relationships. We've talked about the single life. We've talked about sex and the single life. We've talked about marriage. Today, again, we're going to address the subject of honor in marriage. Specifically, what is honor? Specifically, what's going wrong with marriage in our culture? Why are so many people getting divorced? And why are so many people who are still together, why do they seem so unhappy? You've probably heard, at least for the past 30 years, that the divorce rate in America is 50%. 50% of all marriages end in divorce, we are told constantly. That's one out of two. For 30 years, I have hotly contested that number because it is arguable. That number also includes second marriages and third marriages and even fourth marriages. The true number of marriages that end in divorce when that marriage is a first marriage in America is about 31%. So it's one out of three, not one out of two. Stop saying one out of two. It's one out of three. But still, that's a big number. Incidentally, the number of second marriages that end in divorce, do you think that number goes up from 30% or down from 30%? Up, good. 
Most people would assume he'd go down because, hey, you messed up the first go-around. Now you know what you did wrong. We're going to get it right the second time through. The numbers deny that idea. The numbers actually go up to second divorces. They go up even further to third divorces. What is the problem with marriage in America? Today I want to challenge you to consider what God has to say regarding the most intimate relationship in the world, and that is marriage. Now we pointed out several things over the course of this series. There is a stark contrast between marriage in our culture and marriage in the Word of God. There is a stark contrast between what we perceive, what we believe, what we think about marriage in our communities versus what the Word of God says about marriage in His divinely inspired revelation. One thing we've learned is that culture believes marriage is a reward when we find the right person. This is how marriage is promoted in popular culture. It's a reward, a reward that leads to your own personal fulfillment so long as you find the right person. You see, to popular culture, marriage is all about chemistry, and we like it that way. Because when you're talking chemistry, I have no personal responsibility. Chemistry is about mixing two ingredients to create something great, something big, something lasting, worthwhile. You see, if marriage is all about chemistry, then I don't have to do anything. All I have to do is be. All you have to do is be. And if we found the right person, we're going to be fulfilled, satisfied for a lifetime. The Bible says exactly the opposite. Culture continues to say, find the right person. But the Word of God says, no, become the right person. Hey, something else culture believes. Culture believes that premarital cohabitation is foolproof. The best way to ensure a long and lasting marriage is to live together first. Try it out. Kick the tires a few times. See if you like it. See if you're compatible. See if the chemistry is there. Believe it or not, the numbers tell a very different tale. You see, the reason we've embraced this idea is because sex produces counterfeit intimacy. Counterfeit intimacy, it's like a shell game. It's a sleight of hand. Sex produces counterfeit intimacy. We believe we're closer than we really are just because we've seen each other naked. We believe we're more in tune with one another than we really are. We believe we're going to be happier together than we're really going to be just because we've been naked together. Sex produces counterfeit intimacy. Here's something else that culture believes. Culture believes that if I get what I want from my marriage, I'm going to be happy. That's all I'm asking for. I mean, again, if it's all about chemistry and I find the right person and you find the right person, we are the right people for each other, then we're both going to make each other happy. And this is the way it's going to be for the rest of our lives. Here's the big problem. The assumption, again, is exactly backward from Scripture. He goes into it assuming, hey, man, if I can have more sex, if we can do fun stuff together, if we can laugh together, do stuff that I like to do together, and oh, by the way, did I talk about more sex? I'm all about marriage. She goes into it with an entirely different list. If we can build something lasting together, if we can meaningfully communicate about family, marriage, and intimacy as one, if we can be together for the rest of our lives, grow old together as best friends. 
we're going to be happy. The Bible says the exact opposite. What does the Bible say? Well, it's the main idea for today. The Bible says that God calls husbands and wives to mutual honor in marriage. That's the secret. Mutual honor in marriage is God's directive, not my directive, God's directive in marriage. Last time we talked about the goal in marriage. The goal in marriage is not your personal fulfillment. The goal in marriage is oneness. Two become one. It comes from Genesis chapter 2. And the one they become is a reflection of the oneness of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they exist in perfect harmony, in perfect unity, one with another. My relationship with my wife, both our relationships with our Heavenly Father, is a reflection of that oneness. You see, the goal of oneness in marriage is only possible when mutual honor is present. What is honor? Look it up in the dictionary. It means respect, esteem, and dignity. God calls husbands to respect, esteem, and dignify their wives. God calls wives to respect, esteem, and dignify their husbands. Now, the book of Ephesians consists of six chapters, and it falls neatly into two categories. The first three chapters are about theology, about all the things that we are becoming because of our faith in Jesus Christ. All of the things we should know because we follow Christ. The last three chapters, chapters 4, 5, and 6, they describe how we ought to live that out. What we ought to do with that newfound knowledge. When we get to chapter 5, there's some of the most detailed and comprehensive information or instructions on marriage in the whole of the Bible. There is so much good in chapter 5. Now, I need to remind you of something before we go any further. Let me tell you what marriage was like 2,000 years ago in first century Ephesus. When Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesian church, marriage was in a meltdown. You can look it up this afternoon. Do a little history. In first century Roman culture, the Grecian city of Ephesus, marriage was in a meltdown. Adultery was prominent. Wife swapping was commonplace. It was not unheard of for a man to have multiple wives. He could have one to cook. He could have one to do fun stuff with, one to play co-ed church softball with, and one to have sex with. Hear me. Pedophilia in first century Ephesus was as acceptable in their culture as adoption is in our culture today. It was not unheard of for a grown man with a wife or two to adopt a 12-year-old girl or a 12-year-old boy. When Paul writes Ephesians chapter 5 and describes biblical marriage, God-honoring marriage, it stands in stark contrast from what people understood about marriage in their culture. Now, if you have an old translation of the Word of God, you probably have a section break between verse 21 and verse 22. You see, does everybody understand that the chapter and verse divisions in your Bible were added hundreds of years after Paul actually wrote the original autograph? When Paul wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus, he wrote it out longhand. There were no chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and so on. Hundreds of years later, editors, well-meaning editors 
in an attempt to help us better understand and follow along, divided each letter into chapter and verse divisions. Further, they would divide each chapter into subject headings. And until about 25 years ago, verse 21 belonged to the verses that preceded it, and verse 22 started a whole new passage. Most people like it and have preached it by beginning with verse 22. Verse 22 begins, wives, submit to your husbands. And all the men said, amen. Read that again, Pastor Mike. Okay, I will. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Today we're going to begin with verse 21. Read with me Ephesians 5, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Doesn't have the same thing to it, does it, men? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see, most of our problems with this idea of submission have to do with the fact that we wrongly interpret submission as a struggle for power in the relationship. When we talk about submission, we talk about hierarchy. And we'd like to think, at least in a patriarchal society, historically speaking, we would like to think that, well, that means men are here and women are submissive to men. When we talk about submission, we're really arguing over who's in charge. Who's got the power? Who's in charge in your marriage, the husband or the wife? Let me answer that question for both of you. God is in charge. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Mutual submission is a reflection of a husband's submission to God and a wife's submission to God. They can't help but submit to one another. So now let's read verse 22. Because after he lays the groundwork, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, now he's going to get specific. He's going to tell wives how to do it, then he's going to tell husbands how to do it. Verse 22, wives, submit yourselves to your own husband as you submit to the Lord. Submit yourself to your husband as you submit to the Lord. Now, you need to understand, the last part of that verse frames the whole idea. You don't just submit blindly. You submit as you submit to the Lord. Follow me, church. If a wife doesn't understand the meaning of the word submission or honor, it may be because she's never seen her husband submit to Christ and honor him. Remember, that's where it all began, verse 21. There are natural limits, there are boundaries to submission based on verse 22, that last phrase, as to the Lord. God certainly doesn't expect a woman to submit and surrender herself to a man in an abusive relationship whereby the husband is not interested in surrendering himself to God. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife. Headship in your Bible means responsibility, not power, not authority. Men are responsible for their marriages For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Submission is equal to honor. Now, just a little note to the men. Verse 22, men, is none of your business. 
Verse 22 says, wives, submit to your husbands. It does not say, husbands, tell your wives to submit to you. It's not what it says. We're going to begin here with number one. Ladies, my responsibility is to submit to my husband. In fact, I'd like all the ladies in the room, married or unmarried, because many of you will be married one day, I'd like you to say that with me out loud in front of God and everybody. Ready? Here we go. My responsibility is to submit to my husband. Now, we have to do that again because some of you had your teeth clenched so hard when you said that. One more time, ladies. Say it like you mean it. Here we go. My responsibility is to submit to my husband. Wives, submit to your husbands. Verse 22. This is how Paul wants you to understand what mutual submission looks like. It begins with you. You submit to your husband. In light of verse 22, many people believe, they actually teach, that it's the husband who gets to make all the major calls in the family. It's the husband who decides how much we're going to pay for a new car. It's the husband that decides where we're going to live. It's the husband that decides how we're going to handle child care. If there's a disagreement, well, then the husband always gets to make the deciding vote. That's true biblical submission because, after all, submission equals obedience. Do you know that in my lifetime, ministers like me used to stand before a bride and a groom, look at a husband and say, do you promise to love, honor, and cherish your wife? And then turn to the wife and say, do you promise to love, honor, and obey your husband? I've never said that. Not because I'm so progressive, I've progressed beyond that old-fashioned thinking. It's because I understand what Paul's getting at here. The Bible does not teach that submission equals obedience. Let me prove it to you. When was this written? 2,000 years ago. In what part of the world was this written? Half a world away. Nations that surround the ancient Mediterranean Sea. In that day, in that culture, Paul did not have to tell women to let their husbands be the boss. Their husband already was the boss. Just like it is today. In Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Jordan, nations of the like. Women have no power. They have no authority. Men make all the rules. Men have all the power. So Paul's not telling women to let your husband be the boss. That went without saying. What Paul is saying is even in this unfair, male-dominant culture, you've still got to honor him. You've still got to respect him. You've still got to dignify him, esteem him. That is biblical submission. So if you haven't gotten it yet, question, what does submit mean? The passage is not hard to understand. Don't get hung up on that word. You submit to a hundred things every week without giving any thought to it whatsoever. You submitted to the speed limit when you drove to church this morning, right? If not, the policeman would have pulled you over and you'd have definitely submitted to him or her. Why? Because you respect the law. You esteem the law. You dignify the officer. You submit to a 10 o'clock doctor's appointment. You don't stroll in at 1045, right? You submit to the cost of a gallon of gas. You may not like it, but you surrender to it. You submit to 100 things every week, and it never crosses your mind. You submit because you respect. 
You see, the, the real issue in the home, in any marriage, is not obedience. It's honor. It's respect. You may not be familiar with the word submission. Amy and I don't use the word submission in our casual conversation, but I know you understand the word respect. And whether or not you know it, when you honor, when you respect, you submit. So, ladies, how can you honor your husband? What does submission look like? Let me give you some ideas. Number one, don't parent him. Don't parent your husband. You did not take your husband to raise or rear. You married your husband to complete him, and he completes you. You married your husband to build oneness in your home. So stop parenting him. Now, men, I got to say, we'll get to this in a minute, stop needing to be parented. (laughs) Stop doing silly things. You shouldn't have to be asked five times. Look, my wife started teaching Sunday school when she was just 14 or 15 years old. She went to school, got a degree, and was a school teacher in the Metter school system for almost 20 years. She retired and came to work here at this church, and for almost 20 years now, she has been our children's director. When my wife, who has worked with children all her life, starts to parent me, starts to talk down to me like I'm seven, that conversation is over. We're not going to talk like that in my house. I'll get up and walk out, and she knows it. Wives, stop parenting your man. Here's another good idea. Applaud him in public. This is huge. Amy is so good at this. Of all the people in this auditorium, in both services, not one of you has ever heard my wife run me down in public. Instead, she builds me up. She applauds me in public. So many men complain about this. All my wife does is run me down in front of her friends. Wives, I've heard some of you do it, and I'm convinced you don't even know you're doing it. Stop running him down in public. Here's number three. Don't belittle his accomplishments. Don't belittle what he does manage to accomplish. Simple appreciation for the small things. Man, they go a long way with most men. I mean, he keeps up the lawn. He makes sure your car has gas and changes the oil. He he fills the tires. He makes sure it's safe. He keeps up the house. Pat him on the back every now and then. Tell him how much you love and appreciate the contributions he does make. Don't beat him up all the time. We need a cheerleader. Oh, your praise is so important. And by the way, wives, you're going to wind up with a husband you've kept telling him he is all these years. Eventually, you're going to be married to the man that you've been telling him he is. You keep telling him he's lazy, he will wind up lazy. You keep telling him he's irresponsible, he will wind up irresponsible. Even the littlest amount of praise, the smallest element of praise, means so much to most men. I know it sounds shallow. Think of the game of football for a minute. You've got these big, muscle-bound warriors, armor-clad, bleeding, sweating, trying to impose their will on the battlefield, And all the while that's happening, there are pretty girls over there standing there doing this. 
Who do you think came up with that, a man or a woman? A man came up with that. That's because your cheer means so much, so much to us. We need your praise every bit as much as anything you consider to be important that you need from us. And oh, by the way, your criticism is exponentially more destructive. Because follow me, if a man needs your praise and yet all he gets is your criticism, you've, only, you've not only not given him what he needs, you've created a deficit of honor in your home. That's huge. So, once again, ladies, say it with me. Say it like you mean it. Here it comes. My responsibility is to submit to my husband. Now we change gears. Remember, this all began with verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He's explained what it looks like for women and wives. Now let's talk about the men. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. I think it's intriguing, by the way, to notice after Paul lays the groundwork, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ, it only takes him three and a half verses to explain that to women. He's about to spend nine and a half verses explaining it to men. <laughs> Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. Now, men are given two examples, and each one of these examples as to how to love our wife is introduced by the tiny little word, as. Look at verse 28. In the same way, he's already said, love your wife as Christ loved the church. In the same way, verse 28, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. First, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Do you see that, verse 25? How am I supposed to love my wife? Love, love your wife the way Christ loved the church. Now, the word love here, is the supreme, most sacrificial kind of love there is. You see, in our English language, we only have one word for love. I use the same word to describe my feelings for pizza, my dog, and my wife. But in the Greek language, which is very, very eloquent, there are several words for love. And when Paul writes in the Greek language, husbands, love your wives. He's using the word agape love. It is the supreme, most sacrificial kind of love there is. It is the same word that is used in John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so agaped the world, he did what? He gave, he sacrificed his own son. You want to know what submission looks like for a husband? It's sacrificial love. In ancient Greek history, we learn of King Cyrus. King Cyrus was a noble leader, a gentle leader, a military mastermind. One of his generals had a wife who was accused of treachery against the state. She was brought before the king and sentenced to be executed. When the husband found out his wife was about to be executed, he burst into the palace, flung open the 
doors to the throne room and threw himself on his face before King Cyrus. Oh, my Lord Cyrus, take my life instead. Spare the life of the one I love. I will die in her place. Cyrus was moved by this demonstration of love. He said, love like this must not be spoiled by death. And he pardoned the general's wife, reunited the two, and set them both free. As they walked out happily from the throne room, the general looked at his wife and he said, Did you notice how kindly the king looked upon us when he granted your pardon? And the wife responded by saying, I had no eyes for the king. I saw only the man who was willing to die in my place. Men, this is the kind of love God expects from you for your wife. You say, I'd die for my wife. I'd told her that a hundred times. She ought to know that. Look, don't tell me you'd die for your wife, but you just can't give up a Saturday morning fishing trip to spend time with the kids. Don't do that. It don't fly in this church. Don't tell me you'd die for your wife, but hey, helping out with the kids on a Thursday evening when you'd rather play poker with your buddies is just too much to ask. It won't fly in this church. We're talking about needs meeting is what we're talking about. Notice, first, we're to love as Christ loves the church. Second, we're to love as we love our own body. In case the first example was just too lofty for you men, let me make it a little more simple, a little more direct. God says the way you submit, surrender, honor your wife is to meet her needs. Second, as you love your own body. No one's ever hated their own body, no man in particular. Most men feel pretty good about their bodies. The picture, the paradigm is this. You meet your own needs, don't you? Sacrifice to meet her needs. You meet your own needs, don't you? The text says you feed yourself, you care for yourself. You're willing to sacrifice for your own body. Love your wife in the same way. It involves needs Meeting. Strong, godly men meet their wives' needs first. Let me say that again. Strong, godly men meet their wives' needs first. You want to develop positive needs meeting momentum in your marriage. That's what you want. Positive needs meeting. It's like pedaling a bicycle in your marriage. You meet the need. You sacrifice, demonstrate the love. You honor your wife. She responds. You do it again. She responds. You know what I see all too often? The exact opposite. It's negative, selfish ambition, demanding that my needs be met first. Let me illustrate. You want to have sex with your wife before you go to sleep. She's not into it. You roll over and pout. She realizes you're pouting. Next morning, you wake up earlier than she does because you have to go to work earlier. We didn't have sex life last night. I'm not making the coffee for her like I normally do. She walks into the kitchen, realizes you've not made the coffee. You're still pouting from last night. She says, I'm not kissing him goodbye. In fact, I'm not going to speak to him before he leaves. You get in your truck, drive to work, realize that she totally ignored you all morning. You decide not to send her the text that you normally do, not to check in with her during the day as you normally do, not to meet her for lunch as you typically do. She realizes we're not meeting for lunch. She decides I'm not giving back to him. That night you come home. She doesn't greet you with a kiss. She ignores you completely. 
You tell her, we're not having sex tonight. I don't care if you beg for it. She says, fine. What have you done? You've done this. You push back, and she pushes back, and you push back, and she pushes back. Let me ask you a question. How's that working for you? How's it going? Biblical honor is the exact opposite. Positive needs meeting momentum. Question, how can I honor my wife? How do I honor my wife? You see, man, whether or not you understand the need, you still have to respect it. I will never understand the fact that to my wife, $100 is too much. We've been married over 30 years. I, I will never understand why to my wife, $100 is too much. Baby, I'm going to take you out to eat tonight. There's a new restaurant. I've heard great things about it. How much is it going to cost? Oh, we'll probably get out of there for 100 bucks. No, no, that's too much. You see, in our relationship, I'm the spender and she's the saver. If Amy had her way, we'd have every dime we ever made stuffed in a mattress somewhere in the little tiny apartment we lived in when we were first married. Honey, look, I bought you a set of earrings. Bam, check those out, 100 bucks. That's too much. Take them back. I'll never understand why $100 is too much, but I have to respect it. You see, I'll never be that husband that drives home in a brand new car and says, Surprise, honey! If I did that to Amy, we wouldn't talk for six months. <laughs> if I'm going to spend money over $100, i got to warm her up to it a little bit. I got to take a little time, kind of a few months maybe. If I want a boat, if I want a motorcycle, I got to warm her up to the idea. But follow me, honor dictates. I don't do that just because I really want it. I do that to honor my wife. Here's question number two. What does my wife need? Very quickly, most women, men, need three things. They need security first. Most women need security. They're looking for someone with inner strength, someone who doesn't act like a child, someone with stability. They want to build a stable home environment, honesty, transparency, financial responsibility. These are things that offer security to most women. Here's something else women need. They need special attention and quality time. My wife needs to know that she is special. Not just know it, she needs to feel it. My wife needs to feel like she's more important than you are. And you understand that, right? If you needed me at 8 o'clock on a Thursday evening, but she needed me at 8 o'clock on a Thursday evening, guess who loses in that scenario? You do. That's special attention and quality time. It has something to do with romance, but listen, men, romance is so much more than candlelight and flowers and romantic dinners. Ask your wife how she would define quality time and learn from it. And finally, women need meaningful communication. You can't sit there in your easy chair scrolling through your tablet for two hours in the evening and not communicate to your wife. You can't do it. You see, your wife is naturally relationship-minded. She's going to feel as good about herself as she feels good about her marriage. Translation, men, if she feels bad about her marriage, she's going to feel bad about herself. 
You want your wife to feel good about herself. How do you do that? You communicate in your marriage. You talk about us. Look, one more time. Say it with me, men. My responsibility is to love my wife. One more time, men. My responsibility is to love my wife. Paul has just shown us what that looks like. Fact is, typically he believes he's right, she believes she's right, all the while the relationship suffers. And by the way, your relationship suffers if only one sticks to God's priority. If only one spouse is honoring, it's never going to fly. Let me leave you with three quick questions and I'll quit. Question one, you ought to talk about this today. In what ways do I purposefully honor my spouse? What do you do, husband? What do you do, wife, intentionally just to honor, respect, esteem, and dignify your spouse? Question two, in what ways do I unintentionally dishonor my spouse? And number three, what does my spouse need from me? Look, the secret's not chemistry. The secret's mutual honor. Paul laid it out for us. It's easy to understand. The rub occurs... And we have to implement it. But you can do it, and I can do it, and they can do it. What's stopping you? Let's pray. Father, it is with much gratitude that I give thanks for your clear instructions on this subject and the wonderful wife that you gave me a long time ago. Thank you for her beauty. Thank you for her stability. Thank you for her spirit and her faith. But Father, thank you so much for her honor. She not only honors you, she honors me. And that's what makes it good. Father, help husbands honor wives and wives honor husbands. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. I hope you make it a fantastic week. Make sure you wander around the building and check everything out. God bless you.